It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of torture, rape, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It was 1980. Panamanian dictator Omar Torrijos was having dinner with a room full of friends and statesmen. He was moody, quiet. A friend asked him how the National Guard was doing. Torrijos told him to ask his intelligence chief, Tony Noriega. Only Noriega knew everything that was happening. The night before, Noriega had sent a plane full of weapons to the guerrilla fighters in El Salvador. The plane crashed, and by daybreak, everyone in the world knew Panama had been secretly aiding the rebels. Their already tenuous relationship with America had been damaged. But that wasn't what bothered Torrijos. What really worried him was that Noriega hadn't even told him the mission was happening. Torrijos had given his second-in-command almost limitless power. He had trusted him. And now Noriega was keeping secrets from him. If he hadn't been told about this military operation, what else was his most trusted ally hiding? For all Torrijos knew, while he was safe at the Capitol dining with his powerful friends, Tony Noriega was plotting his demise. Hi, I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins on the Parcast Network. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them, and how it changed the community around them. This is our second episode on Manuel Antonio Noriega, a tyrant who ran one of the most successful crime and intelligence monopolies in the world in the 1970s and 80s, all while protected and funded by the American government. Last week, we explored his meteoric rise to power through Panama's military. This week, we'll take a look at Noriega's time as dictator of Panama and the American coup that finally brought him down. You can listen to all of ParCast's shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, or your favorite podcast directory. And if you enjoy the show, one of the best ways to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Manuel Antonio Noriega was the power behind the Panamanian military dictatorship from 1968 to 1981, as well as one of the CIA's most important informants. As both an American asset and dictator Omar Torrijos' right-hand man, 42-year-old Noriega enjoyed more power than he had ever dreamed of. With complete immunity from the law, 
he seized control of Panama's extensive drug and gun smuggling empires, taking a cut of every piece of contraband that crossed the border. He was also, as the CIA was about to discover, collecting classified secrets from multiple world powers and selling them to the highest bidder. The Americans discovered where Noriega's true loyalties laid in the summer of 1976. It was a testy time between the United States and Panama. Canal Treaty negotiations had reared their ugly head again, and the people of Panama had made their agenda clear. The Americans had occupied the canal zone for 73 years, and it was time for them to go. The CIA's prized informant, Tony Noriega, was just stirring the pot. He had reasoned, correctly, that if the United States had asked him to record classified conversations, they were probably asking their other assets to do the same. Those recordings would be worth a fortune to other world powers. Noriega found the system's weak spot, America's own military sergeants. He generously bribed a few soldiers into selling him tapes of their conversations with foreign dignitaries. He then sold the tapes to the Cubans, the Soviets, and anyone else willing to pay a price. When the U.S. Army discovered what had happened, they privately reprimanded the sergeants and closed the file, hushing up the whole embarrassing episode. But the scandal eventually started to leak. U.S. intelligence agencies, for their part, had no desire to prosecute their valuable asset. So when the Senate came asking about Noriega, they pointed the finger back at the Army. The Army, of course, told the Senate the case was already closed and refused to share any documents or records. Without any evidence or cooperation, the U.S. government could only try and fail to bring a case against Noriega. The CIA officially took Noriega off their payroll after the scandal came to light, but it was too late to rein in the monster they'd created. With the money he'd received from selling those tapes, he'd expanded Panama's National Guard from a militia of 5,000 men into a true military of 15,000 soldiers and 150,000 public servants. It was a cash cow of an investment. The new and improved military generated an annual profit of $100 million, both through its military duties and through the smuggling and prostitution rings Noriega hired them to oversee. Both the drug and gun running operated with a precision that would put most businesses today to shame. Bulk shipments were flown into Panama, then to their final destinations in the United States. Once the contraband reached the U.S., contacts Noriega had planted in customs and shipping would fudge the paperwork and let them through without inspection. Noriega didn't even have to be involved. He simply collected his cut. Publicly, the CIA dropped Noriega as an informant after the bribery scandal. But privately, they didn't want to jeopardize their relationship with the shadow dictator. There was no effort to crack down Panama's state-sanctioned smuggling. Noriega's flagrant disregard for the U.S. wasn't just out of carelessness. He had a far greater reason to fan the flames of tension between the two countries. Dictator Torrijos had become popular based on his promise that once the Panama Canal treaties were finalized, he would turn over control of the country to the elected civilian government. But in the midst of the tensions between the U.S. and Panama, the people now saw the military dictatorship as a necessary evil in their fight against U.S. occupation. 
public opinion was now squarely behind Torrijos. And when the time was right, all the pieces would be in place for Noriega himself to assume the dictatorship. After all this, the U.S. still considered Noriega useful. In fact, by being public enemies, the U.S. and Panama were reaping even more private benefits. Their secret arrangement came in handy in November of 1979. President Jimmy Carter had offered to open America's border to the exiled Shah of Iran. In response, anti-American students in Tehran stormed the American embassy and took 66 people hostage. If the American hostages had any hope of survival, the Shah would have to leave American soil, and fast. The Shah couldn't go back to Iran, or he'd be executed. He couldn't stay with anyone considered an American ally, or it would just reaffirm America's guilt in the eyes of the Iranian people. So, the U.S. turned to Panama. Publicly, Panama and the United States were feuding in 1979. Torrijos could offer the Shaw asylum without tipping anyone off that the U.S. had been involved. Torrijos gave the duty of protecting and housing the Shaw to Tony Noriega. To anyone else, this babysitting job would have been insulting, even humiliating. But Noriega saw it for what it could be, a babysitting detail that would make him rich beyond his wildest dreams. Access to the exiled Shah could give him highly valuable intel to sell to the highest international bidder. Tony was already seeing dollar signs in his eyes. In preparation for the arrival, Tony met with the Shah's advisor, Robert Armayo, to find a house for the fallen monarch. Tony drove Armayo around Panama, watching for signs that a house had caught the advisor's eye. Tony's response was immediate and cocky. You like that one? It's yours. It didn't matter if people were already living in it. Tony was determined to show off his place in Panama's pecking order. Eventually, he drove back to the airfield where an Electra turboprop plane was waiting. The plane looked like it was held together with duct tape. Tony grinned as they boarded. He could protect the Shah here, too, even if the plane fell apart. Tony flew Armayo over Contadora Island, where the wealthy lived in mansions over the golden beaches and turquoise ocean. He pointed out the compound that belonged to Panama's former ambassador to the United States, this would be the perfect place to house the Shaw and his wife. It was quiet, secure. And it gave Noriega the perfect opportunity to rob the Shaw blind. Tony's plans for the Shaw's trip were extensive. He wallpapered his office with schedules and maps. He chose men from the National Guard to form two protection details. When the Shaw arrived in Panama a couple days later, Tony wasted no time in presenting the bill. He charged the Shah for his guards' pay and then requested $10,000 per month for two small shacks where the men could stay. The Shah was also billed for the guards' meals, their booze, and their romps with local sex workers. He charged the Shah for the mobile van he parked beside the home and for the bugs he secretly planted in each room of the house. Then, he charged the same amounts to the Panamanian defense budget, keeping all of the Shah's payments for himself. During the 100-day visit, Tony pocketed more than $12 million of the Shah's money. 
and that barely skimmed the surface of what he made selling tape recordings of the Shah and his wife to competing foreign governments. For the most part, dictator Torrijos was fine with his intelligence chief's opportunism, but he was starting to grow worried about how much influence he'd allowed Tony Noriega to accumulate. Torrijos had never cared much about state affairs, and he'd quickly grown bored of his political responsibilities. For years, he'd been happy to let Noriega run the country while he sat back and reveled in his position. But by 1981, the ennui had started to infect every aspect of the dictator's life. Wealth and power had lost their allure. He had even stopped womanizing and fallen back in love with his wife. Torrijos had thought about stepping down, but he was afraid of what the country would look like if he let Noriega take control. By that point, Noriega knew more about Panama's affairs than Torrijos did. He was running his own intelligence operations and military missions without even telling the dictator. Torrijos was starting to wonder what else he didn't know about and whether his loyal second-in-command could really be trusted. He didn't have to worry for long. On July 31, 1981, Torrijos' twin propeller plane crashed into a mountain. He died immediately. Just like that, his 13-year rule came to a fiery end. No one knows if the crash was an accident, planned by the CIA, by anti-Torrijos opposition leaders, or by Noriega himself, since Noriega never investigated the incident. Whatever the cause, Torrijos' death created a power vacuum. All across Panama, the military leaders in line for the dictatorship began plotting their ascent. If only they'd noticed the shadowy figure lurking behind the throne, poised to plunge his dagger into their backs. Up next, we'll take a look at how Manuel Antonio Noriega beat out all of his competitors to take control of his country. Now, back to the story. Manuel Antonio Noriega had controlled Panama in all but name for years before dictator Torrijos finally met his end in 1981. Now, he would have to fight to remain in power as the country searched for its next military leader. Despite his laziness and corruption, Torrijos had been a popular leader. Job opportunities had soared as shady banks and money laundering operations crowded the country. He hadn't tried to control the personal lives of his citizens like so many dictators had before him. Of course, Tony Noriega had terrorized the opposition party, but to the people of Panama, Torrijos remained separate from the brutality of his pineapple-faced enforcer. When Torrijos died, the public wanted a successor who would keep his legacy alive. Initially, Torrijos's chief of staff, Colonel Flores, took over as dictator. Flores was a lot like Torrijos. He didn't like ruling, he didn't know much about military leadership, and cared just as little about civilian leadership. But Flores' lax attitude made him weak in the eyes of the three men behind him in line for the dictatorship. First in line after Flores was Colonel Ruben Paredes, who we mentioned last week. He had been sent to Cuba with Noriega to negotiate with Fidel Castro. Paredes was handsome, articulate, and confident, and in many ways, the ideal candidate. He was middle class and mixed race, which made him appealing to the lower classes. He was also a horse breeder, giving him close access to the social elite. 
Second in line was a man named Colonel Contreras, who oversaw a large section of the National Guard. And third in line was Tony Noriega. He had been close to Torrijos, but as a lieutenant colonel, he had less official power than the others. If he wanted to keep his influence, it would take some maneuvering. Shortly after Torrijos died in 1981, these three military leaders met in secret to discuss what was to be done about their new dictator, Colonel Flores. Colonel Paredes, who was first in line, was committed to balancing the power between the military and the civilian government. He was a military figure himself, but he believed the military's power had gotten out of hand. His plan was to become military dictator, slowly transition more power to the civilian sector, and then retire as dictator to become the civilian president. The Panamanian people would be pleased with the show of progress, and the civilian and military governments could finally cooperate instead of warring for power. If he had any chance of pulling this off, he needed assurance that the two men in line behind him, Contreras and Noriega, wouldn't try to stage a coup and take over. He proposed an arrangement. They worked together to oust Flores and then take turns serving as military commander. Paredes would be commander from 1981 to 1983, at which time he would turn over power to Contreras and run for president in 1984. Contreras would take over as commander from 1984 to 1986, then Noriega would get his chance from 1987 to 1989. Everyone agreed. There was just one more step. They needed to get rid of Flores. The plan was to use Noriega's personal National Guards to surround the government building where Flores was staying. Then they would pressure Flores to give up the office. They knew he wasn't going to fight for it. Noriega literally arrived late to the coup. The other men feared that at any moment, he might choose to side with Flores and arrest Colonel Paredes for treason. But Noriega was thinking much farther ahead. For now, he went along with the plan. With the National Guard surrounding the capital, Flores easily agreed to step down. Colonel Paredes took office as military commander of Panama. Paredes' next step was to remove Colonel Contreras, the second in line for the dictatorship. He was suspicious that Contreras would betray their contract and stage a coup to take power. Noriega went along with this, doing everything he could to appear loyal. With Contreras out of the way, Noriega was now second in line. Paredes was oblivious to the fact that he'd just traded a lamb for a wolf in sheep's clothing. After two years, in August 1983, Paredes stepped down to run for civilian president, just as planned. His final act was to make Tony Noriega a general so that he could take over as military commander. That was the step Noriega was waiting for. He already owned the military through his backdoor politics and secret friendships. Now, as a general, it was official. To celebrate his promotion, Noriega threw a party at Fort Amador. It was one of the largest, gaudiest parties in Panama history. There was a full military parade, dancing horses, and a VIP list of influential American generals. Noriega gave a toast and thanked Paredes, but everyone in the room knew who was really holding all the cards. 
As a final cheer, Noriega called out to Paredes, Buen salto, Ruben. It was a phrase paratroopers said before diving out of airplanes. It meant, have a good jump. The next day, Noriega began his plan to oust Paredes from power entirely. First, he showed off a letter from Fidel Castro claiming he would withdraw all Cuban alliances with Panama if Paredes was elected president. Whether the letter was authentic or not, it startled the civilian government enough to withdraw their support for Paredes's campaign. Then, Noriega quietly told American intelligence officers and Panamanian rebel groups that a former general like Paredes would never trade power to the civilian sector. Both groups quickly withdrew their support as well. Finally, Noriega warned businessmen that their lucrative military contracts would disappear if the military lost power to Paredes' civilian government. That was enough to change their minds. In just three weeks, Noriega had torpedoed Paredes' presidential campaign. There was no chance he would win the next year's election, and he had already resigned his military dictatorship to 49-year-old Tony Noriega. Noriega wasted no time in seizing more control than any dictator before him. Within a few weeks, he passed a law that gave him explicit control over all customs, immigration, airports, ports, the army, the navy, the police, and even parking enforcement. The law also stated that all those branches would remain under Noriega's personal control no matter who became dictator or president in the future. He began paying military officers and businessmen upwards of $20,000 a month to secure their continued loyalty. He cozied up to Nicaragua, Cuba, China, Russia, and his old friends in the U.S. He expanded his stake in Panama's drug smuggling by getting close to the Medellin cartel, one of the two biggest cocaine cartels in Colombia. The cartel paid Noriega 3% of each shipment that made it through Panama into the U.S. and 2% of the money they laundered in Panama's banks. In total, Noriega would help the Medellin cartel transfer and launder over $2 billion in cocaine during the 80s, earning him a tidy profit of at least $60 million. That would be over $150 million today. By 1984, the elections for civilian president were fast approaching. Paredes was no longer in the running, but someone would still have to fill the position. Noriega's chosen candidate was Nicolas Barletta, the president of one of his corrupt banks. Barletta was not only comfortable with money laundering, but he had also been unofficially informing to American intelligence, which Noriega knew and oversaw. He was the ideal corrupt candidate. The only problem was he was running against Arnulfo Arias, the popular man who Noriega and Torrijos had ousted as president years before. He had finally returned to Panama, and he was ready to take the presidency once again. The Panamanian people absolutely adored Arias. If Noriega had him assassinated, he would lose all respect from the Panamanian people, even his own men. Noriega would have to win this election with good old-fashioned poll rigging. 
On election day in 1984, anti-military protesters filled the grounds outside the legislative building, where the final vote tallies were being displayed on a giant board. They suspected there'd be foul play. And they were right. By evening, it was clear Barletta was going to lose. Noriega told the vote counters to begin ratcheting up the numbers on the board in favor of Barletta. He made a call to his soldiers and asked them to assemble in front of the protesters in case they tried to cause a ruckus. If that didn't stop them, he gave his men permission to open fire. Which is exactly what they did. And they weren't just firing warning shots. The demonstrators scrambled for cover. One, then two, then ten people fell under the barrage of bullets. In total, 40 were injured and one person died. The soldiers remained in place all night while Noriega's people tallied false votes on the display board. The next morning, Noriega's puppet president, Barletta, was declared the victor. The entire world turned a blind eye to the mass shooting. It seemed that there was no one in the world brave enough or powerful enough to take Tony Noriega down. Except there was. A beloved Panamanian doctor by the name of Hugo Spadafora, a guerrilla medic who had fought with rebel groups in three separate countries, Spadafora was essentially a medical version of Rambo, as content to carry a gun as he was to save a life. And he despised Noriega. He had been an outspoken critic of the military dictatorship since 1975, and he was the first person to publicly call Noriega a drug smuggler and arms dealer in 1981. Spadafora had even worked with a district attorney in Miami to draw up gun smuggling charges against Noriega. But his attempts to seek justice fell on deaf ears. Spadafora was chased out of Panama by death threats from Noriega's men. Meanwhile, in the United States, the CIA, DEA, and State Department had hampered every attempt by the Miami District Attorney to press charges against Noriega. They made it clear that if he wanted a prosperous career, he would drop his attempts to convict the dictator. By 1985, however, Dr. Spadafora was determined to return to Panama and fight Noriega once and for all. He believed if he could make it across the border, he stood a fighting chance of convincing the Panamanian people to join his cause. On September 13, 1985, Dr. Spadafora got on a bus and crossed into Panama. He had only just made it across the border when the bus was pulled over by the Panamanian Defense Forces, formerly known as the National Guard. A soldier asked Spadafora to get off the bus. He held up his ID, told the other riders his name, and said that he was being detained illegally. He went willingly with the soldier, believing he'd be detained and released soon enough. But that wasn't going to happen. Fourteen soldiers took the doctor away and began a tour of torture that would last for several hours. The next morning, Costa Rican police found Dr. Spadafora's torso in a U.S. postal bag abandoned in a ravine. The soldiers had peeled off his fingernails, broken his ribs, repeatedly raped him, and finally beheaded him while he was still alive. Noriega believed killing Spadafora would save him hassle, 
but within 24 hours, hundreds of witnesses who had seen Spadafora's arrest came forward to give statements to journalists, both domestic and international. A Panamanian newspaper published the names of all 14 soldiers involved in the incident. The witnesses whose names were published were severely punished, threatened, or taken into police custody. But it was too late to cover it all up. International human rights organizations began keeping track of the acts of terrorism Noriega committed against his own people. Opposition leaders were mowed down in hit-and-runs. Soldiers had carte blanche to kill any person suspected of being a guerrilla fighter. Noriega's soldiers began branding, carving, and tattooing their unit identifier F-8 into the bodies of anyone they tortured. In September 1985, Noriega flew to New York City for a general meeting with a CIA official. While he was gone, President Barletta opened an official investigation into Dr. Spadafora's death. He naively believed the investigation would prove that Noriega had not been involved in the murder. Ten days later, on September 25, 1985, Noriega returned to Panama. Barletta was immediately summoned to Noriega's office. Barletta was detained for 14 hours while Noriega and his men pressured him to resign. Barletta realized that his faith in the dictator had been misplaced. The CIA orchestrated a call with Noriega to show President Barletta that they weren't coming to his rescue. They couldn't jeopardize their Latin American connections for the sake of one man's murder. There was nothing left to do but for Barletta to resign. His resignation confirmed for the Panamanian people that Noriega had, in fact, ordered Spadafora's murder. With the growing public discontent, American support was the only thing protecting Noriega from being removed from power. He now had to submit entirely to Washington's whims blowing up Nicaraguan military bases and assassinating Nicaraguan resistance leaders whenever he was asked. Even worse, these offers were being officially recorded by U.S. intelligence agencies. Even though Noriega had been doing these things for years, he was now leaving a paper trail. The Assistant Secretary for Latin American Affairs, Elliot Adams, started keeping public records of all known interactions between the U.S. and Panama. He encouraged U.S. officials to push for Noriega to turn over power to the civilian government. Meanwhile, Noriega's allies in the U.S. began quietly telling him to soften his image and slow down his illegal activities until the storm against him had blown over. The U.S. intelligence agencies were trying to protect him, but he had to play along. Noriega balked. He still believed he was untouchable. When the U.S. State Department warned him to destroy any documents he didn't want found, Noriega just laughed. He would regret it. A motley crew of politicians and journalists were about to begin toppling the dominoes that would lead to Noriega's end. Up next, we'll finish up our story with Noriega's downfall. Now, back to the story. By 1986, after only three years as dictator, Manuel Antonio Noriega's crimes had reached monstrous proportions. His war crimes 
and violence against his own people were becoming more difficult for U.S. intelligence agencies to overlook. U.S. Senator Jesse Helms had been moved to disgust by Dr. Hugo Spadafora's murder, but he was hard-pressed to find anyone who would support sanctions against the dictator who caused it. He asked Dr. Spadafora's sister to write an appeal to the Senate and track down proof that the U.S. had helped oust Panamanian President Barletta. Senator John Kerry joined the fight, making it a bipartisan effort. That was only the beginning. On June 12, 1986, journalist Seymour Hirsch wrote a lengthy expose about Noriega's crimes and human rights violations. It ran on the front page of the New York Times, where no one could ignore it. In retaliation, Noriega seized an American ship traveling through the Panama Canal to assert his power over the U.S. Of course, this only succeeded in proving the senators and journalists correct. The CIA tried to bury the story, but Senator Helms kept pushing. In 1986, he wrote a clause into the Intelligence Appropriations Bill requiring the CIA to compile a report on Noriega's human rights abuses. Senators Helms and Kerry finally had the support and evidence they needed to investigate Noriega. Noriega ignored the growing pressure entirely. On August 22, 1988, he threw a massive party to celebrate his fifth anniversary as military dictator. 2,000 guests arrived to drink, laugh, and burn effigies of Helms, Kerry, and journalist Seymour Hirsch in front of Panama's legislative building. Rebel groups pointed at the lavish party as evidence of his corruption. Noriega burned newspapers, tortured and branded resistance leaders, and clamped down on civil liberties. But he couldn't entirely silence his critics. It went on like that for nearly three years, with Noriega's cruelty growing every day. Neither the rebels nor the Americans could gather enough supporters and evidence to bring him down. Then, on December 15, 1989, Noriega finally tipped the balance. He declared himself maximum leader of Panama and suspended the Constitution entirely. This was one overreach too many. Within a few hours, news came in that there would be a coup, orchestrated not only by Noriega's own soldiers, who had finally grown tired of his brutality, but also by the Americans, who had been deeply embarrassed by him in the face of the Senate investigation. Noriega sent his most loyal soldiers out to defend his compound. They put up roadblocks, aimed their AK-47s, and searched any cars that came their way. A little after 9 p.m. the next night, four American Marines made a fatal wrong turn down a street Noriega's soldiers had blockaded. Unable to back out, the Marines could only sit and wait as the soldiers surrounded them, screaming slurs and threats. When the car ahead of them moved forward, the Marines sped way down the street. Noriega's men opened fire. Bullets pierced the car and struck one of the Marines in the back. The driver sped away. He had no idea where the nearest hospital was. Back at the roadblock, a passing American couple accidentally wandered too close. They were duct-taped and taken for interrogation. The soldiers repeatedly punched the husband in the groin, prying for information about the Marines who had sped away. 
They told him if he didn't talk, they would take turns raping his wife. When they realized the couple didn't know anything, the soldiers released them, but the damage had already been done. The couple immediately reported what had happened to U.S. officials. Across the city, the wounded Marine died from blood loss only minutes after reaching a hospital. A few days later, these two incidents would trigger the largest U.S. invasion since the Vietnam War. On December 18, 1989, three days after declaring himself maximum leader, Noriega heard from his last remaining allies in U.S. intelligence that something big was coming. Noriega was on borrowed time. The next day, Soviet spies watching U.S. military bases warned Noriega that the Americans were on the move. Noriega fled his compound to hide out with the few friends he had left. The powerful leader was reduced to shuffling from house to house in the back of a beaten-up car. He had to crawl across the floor on his belly, out of sight of the windows. His bodyguards were now dictating where he could go, whether he could stand, and whether he could use the phone. Two days later, on December 20th, 1989, two planes with precision firepower flew low over Noriega's now vacant compound and obliterated it. Two dozen American soldiers were sent to secure the location, even though it was already rubble. The fight continued in the streets, Noriega's soldiers threw Molotov cocktails and grenades at U.S. tanks as they rolled down the street. Of the 24 American soldiers on the ground, 21 were injured, but the U.S. was just getting started. When the men fought near the compound, two separate parachute assaults took control of military checkpoints throughout the area, cutting off any reinforcements that might try to retake the capital. Transport planes, Air Force fighters, Paratroopers and attack helicopters rained down from the sky. Over 27,000 troops touched down in Panama in a matter of a few days. It was clear the Panamanians were outnumbered. Most of Noriega's soldiers simply gave up. Many fled before U.S. troops had even arrived. Meanwhile, Noriega was slithering across the floors of safe houses, powerless to defend himself. He knew his time was up. His once absolute power was gone. In a final desperate attempt to avoid punishment, he turned to the Vatican for clemency and protection from the United States. Noriega managed to flee to Vatican City, where the embassy agreed to shelter him for a time. He spent his Christmas safe within their walls. But the U.S. soon found out where he was. They surrounded the Vatican embassy blasting heavy metal music from their loudspeakers to move things along. The embassy eventually turned Noriega over on January 3, 1990. When all was said and done, the invasion of Panama cost 26 American lives and over 300 Panamanian lives, though some sources claim there were as many as 7,000 civilian casualties. Noriega faced charges in the U.S., France, and Panama for various crimes, including drug and gun trafficking and human rights violations. He spent the rest of his life shuffling between prisons in all three countries before dying during brain surgery on May 29, 2017, at the age of 83. 
The U.S. invasion of Panama ended a reign of terror by a small man who governed with torture. But it's important to remember, this story isn't about a benevolent world power saving Panama from a bloodthirsty tyrant. It's about a tyrant who outgrew his usefulness to the world power he'd been answering to all along. For better or worse, the success of the invasion also encouraged the U.S. to continue its policy of invading and toppling foreign governments when they became hostile to U.S. interests. It also succeeded in finally dismantling the Panamanian military dictatorship. On February 13, 1990, the Panamanian Defense Forces were decommissioned. The country's new police force would be unarmed, and control of the country would rest with the civilian government. Tony Noriega's rule had been one of incredible highs and lows, but in the end, his allegiance to power and money over his own people led to his undoing. He was reduced to a lonely and powerless man, forced to watch his glory fade as he fell into obscurity. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. You can find Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoyed this, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Jordan Trapier and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.